you know, it is, it has been an exercise in trust, right? Trust in God in seeing him uh, raise up Ethan over this long protracted um, period from basically Easter to now. And every time we go through this process, it reminds me as Dave prayed, uh, how faithful God is, how consistent he is. And it just cements further our ability to trust him with these changes and transitions. And you know, in this series that we're in right now called Stay Out, it's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with our tendency as Christians even to not trust God with certain areas of our life. And uh, so if you're new with us this morning, we're in this series and we've kind of been wrestling through some different topics. Like, will I invite God back into some of these areas that I've said stay out? So we looked in the first week at my relationship with food, for instance. And then we looked at uh, the choices I make with what I watch and see, our, our entertainment. And then we looked at how we disperse our budgets, that, that Jesus is really the Lord of those areas. This morning, we're looking at an area that's not sensitive at all as we talk about my bedroom. And the Bible actually has a lot to say about this topic. And uh, we're going to wrestle with kind of uh, one big point this morning, that God is the one who designed sex and that he has the right to prescribe what is good, healthy, and honoring to him in how we carry out our sexuality as human beings. And I can promise you that we need the Lord's help to do that and to do it well. So we pray with me this morning. Our God and Father, we, uh, Lord, we thank you for the series that has challenged and provoked us in a, a bunch of different ways. And uh, this morning, Lord, I just want to place this topic of my bedroom before you. And Lord, I recognize that people come to this topic with all kinds of emotions. Some emotions like hurt, uh, a background of abuse, shame, uh, just hard things, but also in some cases, joy and fulfillment and gratitude. And so, Lord, we, with all of that, we ask that you, by your supernatural power, Holy Spirit, would, would speak to each one, myself included in this room and those watching online, the very thing that we need to hear this morning. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So three big points this morning that we're going to uh, approach this topic with. Number one, sex is God's idea. Sex is God's idea. And we'll unpack that rather thoroughly. And then number two, sex is not ultimate. We'll see that sex is a good thing, but it's not ultimate. Finally, sex and the gospel, or what I'm going to call the call to holy sexuality. That's our approach this morning. We're going to begin with sex is God's idea. We're beginning at the very beginning of the scripture in Genesis 1, and we'll kind of break this into three subpoints. The first one being that sex distinction is good. And this is what we see very early in the creation narrative. I want to remind you, or maybe this is an introduction to you, that, that the, the creation account that we're going to read here, we believe is historic. It's not fable. It's not mythology. And so we're, we're reading of God's creative work. Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Our first point, sex distinction is good, comes with uh, an understanding from Genesis 1 that we are image bearers of God himself. God in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had perfect fellowship and communion within himself from eternity past. In other words, he didn't need to create humanity. God creates uh, mankind or humanity out of his love and his desire to share that relationship. 
with his, his creation. But God creates us uniquely in our ability to relate to one another and to our God. We are different than the animal kingdom. Human beings, unlike evolutionary science teaches us, are not the highest evolved form of mammals. No, we are a special, unique, pinnacle apex of God's creative work. We see this in the text really clearly. And a major part of that in Genesis 1 is that we are distinct biologically. We're male and female. Notice it says that God created him, God created them, male and female, and then immediately God blessed them. And he gives them uh, dominion over the planet. Another way to say that, stewardship over the, over the planet, together as male and female. And then in verse 31, it says, and God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. The Bible teaches that sex distinction is good. Now, we live in a time in our culture where, where uh, that teaches or that challenges that with sex distinction is suspect or maybe even bad or to be questioned. That's not the teaching of scripture. But I want to make a pastoral point here this morning. It may be that in a group this large or someone online that you struggle with your own sex distinction, that you struggle with the biology that you were born with. This teaching is not in an insensitivity to that. In fact, God knows more even than you how and why he made you the way he did. And I would encourage you toward two things. One, working through that, that challenge in your biology and your self, sort of sense of self and identity begins, if I could say gently, with submitting and surrendering to the fact that God knows you better than you know you. And saying, all right, Lord, I don't understand and I wrestle and I struggle, but I'll submit to you that the Bible teaches that sex distinction is good. Help me to learn what it means to be who I am and to walk with you. And then I would tell you that this church is a safe place to come into the process of discipleship around that very topic. But ultimately, the scripture teaches sex distinction is good. Now, when we come to Genesis 2, the, the narrative actually kind of backs up and talks about how God made mankind or humanity male and female. It kind of gives us the detail uh, of how that went down. And we're going to make good the second point out of that, this next passage, that sexual intimacy is a gift. Sexual intimacy is a gift. Genesis 2. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Here we see this unique dimension of God's creative work where he makes, he takes woman from man. It says, for this reason, then God pairs us off as husband and wives to kind of hearken back in the one flesh union to the fact that he took one from the other. And when we see ladies that God takes the woman from the man and gives him to the man as a suitable helper, that's not condescension, actually, it's, it's compliment. It's that, that we fit together more than even just biologically. A little bit of a humorous illustration here. And I'm going to pick on the, I'm going to be a little sexist toward the guys in the room. I don't know when the last time you were in a bachelor pad. Uh, maybe it's been, maybe it was yesterday for some of you, but, and I'm talking like two, three, four guys living together, right? You go into a place like that. And one of your first thoughts probably is this brother needs a suitable helper. You know, 
Now, ladies, I'm not saying someone up, to, I'm not saying a maid, that's not, certainly not what the Bible's teaching, or somebody to clean up after him, no. No, but when a woman comes into a man's life, she makes him a better person. He starts to groom himself better. He starts to take care of his surroundings better. He becomes more responsible. There's something about how God has designed us in sex distinction and in sexual intimacy that is a gift and it makes, it brings out the best in both of us. That's the point. And so God gives us the gift of the one flesh union. We're gonna to touch on the deeper meaning of that later. But suffice it to say, three reasons God gives husbands and wives sexual union is that we would be bound uniquely to one other person before God, that we would derive pleasure from that union. And then ultimately God allows us, he talks in the, in the Genesis 1 text, that we would be fruitful, that it's the, the procreation, the furtherance of our species comes from that union, that gift union. Sex distinction is good. Sexual intimacy is a gift. Thirdly, sex is God glorifying. And from two vantage points, we've kind of already touched on one. One, that the joy of God's creative work, God creating out of love these uh, male and female, but also from another perspective. Hebrews 4, uh, 13, 4 tells us, marriage is to be honored by all, not just married people, but unmarried people as well. And the marriage bed kept pure or undefiled. Why? The next two words, because God. And namely, because God will judge the immoral and the adulterer. Now, this is written to Christians, brothers and sisters. There should be a certain level of trembling associated with stepping away from God's design. In, in sex distinction, in the, intimacy, in the gift of intimacy between a man and a woman for life both because God is a good God, but also because he is our judge. There is a measure of submission to his design. So we glorify God. Paul draws this out in Ephesians chapter five. Interestingly, he says, he quotes verbatim from Genesis two. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. I want you to notice this morning that Paul doesn't update the language or the plan for the culture of his time, which is thousands of years later in the Greco-Roman world in which all kinds of sexual deviancy is taking place. There's no cultural update to, the, to God's plan here. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 19, when he's asked about divorce, he does the same exact thing. He quotes Genesis 2 verbatim. And so you can draw a straight line from Genesis 2 to Jesus in Matthew's gospel to Paul in Ephesians. And, and the idea is to us today. We do not update God's sexual ethic for the culture of our time or our day. It is the same. But Paul goes on from there and he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm actually talking about Christ in the church. What Paul is saying is that the sexual union between a man and a woman for life images or illustrates on, in, on a, the physical plane, the spiritual reality of Christ's intimate relationship with his bride, the church, wherewith he went to the cross, gave his life, bled and died for the forgiveness of our sins because he loved us that much. And the inverse of that, Paul says earlier, is that that's how husbands are to love their wives, lay down their lives for them. That is the relationship. You see, what we're wrestling with here is, again, that idea of purpose. The, the theologians would say, they call this telos. Telos is sort of an ultimate meaning or end or purpose. And God's ultimate meaning or end is that through a God-honoring, healthy sexual relationship in marriage, we would see Christ. And, and God's love for us. We, would, we uh, would understand the gospel at a deeper level. You see, the issue of our sexuality 
is not that we have too much passion or too high of expectations or we're too deeply embedded in this idea of wanting to enjoy sex. It's actually the total opposite. Our, our passions and our expectations and our understanding are base. They're low level compared to what God has for us in his plan. C.S. Lewis said about this, he said, we're like kids playing with mud pies in the dirt and trying to be satisfied with that. And God has a whole world, a whole paradise for us if he would just look up and do things his way. You see, God is the one who designed sex and he has the right to prescribe what is good, what is healthy, and what honors him? And the question I've been asking myself is, do I really believe that? And where my mind goes, in, and listen, I, I, don't put me on a pedestal, right? I understand very much what it means to be drawn and lured and pulled by lustful thoughts. Very much so. And so the question I put to all of us, is Jesus the Lord of my bedroom? Like some of these other topics. Or do, are there times in my life, or I'll just speak for me, where I say, you know what? Stay out. And that could be in a host of ways. It might be that I, I say to the Lord, or, or we as a people, stay out. I want to indulge in this virtually, right? In images and videos and the practice of masturbation. It might be engaging in sexual relationships with someone of my same sex and gender. It might be engaging and living with someone that I've not made the covenant of marriage with before God. It might be engaging in sexual behavior, even suggestive behavior with someone who isn't my spouse. For any of that, we are defiling the telos, the purpose for which God has designed. Marriage as God has designed it is, it's the only way that it can image Christ's relationship with his bride. Now, we need to be careful as Christians because the world and the culture that we live in, they are not Christians. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They've not been regenerated. Should we, not, we should not, and Paul's clear about this in 1 Corinthians, we should not expect the world to behave and think and act like Christians. But that does not mean that we don't in our own lives, in our behavior, but even as we unpack God's beautiful plan for sexuality, share that with others. Sex is God's idea. Number two, sex is not ultimate. Sex is not ultimate. Uh, Dennis Hollinger, former president of Gordon-Conwell Seminary, Seminary, said this provocative statement. He said, life without sexual intimacy in marriage is not a deficient life. Life without sexual intimacy in marriage is not a deficient life. Our culture would vehemently disagree with that. You may struggle to agree with that. If you're an unmarried person, maybe you're later in life, maybe you've been through a divorce, whatever your situation, or you're young and you're longing to be married and you hear that from, he is a married guy and a married guy saying that, you say, yeah, easy for you to say you're married. My friends, the Lord Jesus Christ the most fulfilled human being in human history, did not have sex, was not married. Jeremiah and Elijah in the Old Testament did not have sex. John the Baptist, Paul the Apostle, as we'll see really clearly, did not have sex. And so Hollinger makes the second point. He says, rather, life without intimacy with God in Christ is deficient. Despite what the Greco-Roman world said to the Corinthian Christians that we're going to look at in a moment, despite enlightenment thinking 
that led to modern and postmodern psychology, despite what the culture makers of our time say today. Sexual identity and practice and behavior is not the sole essence and core and center of my being and who I am as a person. It's just not. It's an important part of who we are, but it is not the center. It's not ultimate. It's just not. It's the clear speak teaching of Scripture. And so Paul makes this provocative statement in 1 Corinthians 7. He says this. He says, I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift. And he goes on. What is he talking about? He's saying, I wish all people were single like me. If you're an unmarried single person this morning, take some courage from Paul's words. And you say, well, well, how do we know that's what he's talking about? Well, jump over to verse 32. This is what Paul says. I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, so that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of this world, how she may please her husband. I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint or to restrict you, but to promote what is proper so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. What is Paul's wish here? I think Paul's kingdom wish is that there would be an army of unmarried people who for the sake of this life would say, I'm not gonna pursue marriage and sex. I'm gonna be devoted to the Lord and use all my time and all my energies for the kingdom of Christ to see others come into a redemptive relationship with Jesus Christ. That's my, my mission. And Paul says, there's a tremendous advantage to you if you're a single person. We would call it today discretionary time, you know, undistracted time. And what comes with that is a little bit of a, a, a mandate. We could say it this way. Unmarried people, with uh, the more discretionary time you have, is a gift from God. How are you using it? How are you stewarding that time? What are you spending your time and your energies on? Married people, we would say the ability to enjoy sex is a gift that you're being give, you've been given. Are you honoring it? Are you stewarding it? Even for the sake of those who aren't married and don't have that gift. And we'll get into that a little bit later on our applications. What Paul is saying in the larger context is how are you being devoted to God in whichever of these two gifts you have, discretionary time or the enjoyment of sex? That's the challenge. And so what he's saying is to, to pursue holy sexuality. Now, Christopher Yuan, in his book of the same title, he defines holy sexuality in a super helpful and succinct way. He says, holy sexuality is chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. Chastity and singleness, that is a, a devotedness, a purity, a holiness. Uh, like Isaiah prophesies about, about Christ hundreds of years before his birth, it says he, will, he has set his face like a flint. Jesus was single-minded in his devotion to the mission that God the Father has given, had given him, obedient. Paul is envisioning an army of unmarried people with that focus. Single-minded devotion. What about faithfulness in marriage? Well, we're gonna unpack that in just a moment. I share a little bit from my own life. I was married a little bit later in life, 28. I was 28 years old. So I had about 11 years of being single between uh, high school and when I got married. And I was deeply committed to the ministry I was involved in. 
such that I was discipling several young men. I was involved in youth ministry and actually speaking to the elders about coming on here full time at some point, which eventually happened. But early in that decade, I struggled in secret with lust and pornography. Now, for those of you who remember ancient history, this was during the dial-up internet years, right? And there's this battle going on that I was losing and it was all secretive. And then a brother and I confessed to each other and the Holy Spirit showed us the power of not struggling in secret and naming and calling sin what it is. And we formed a men's group and we started to share with each other. And it became a, a co-ed group of, of ministry that became the 20s and the young adults group here at GBC. And in that time, the elders at this church, a couple of them in particular, came alongside of us. And they were firm with us in accountability, but grace-filled as they should be. And it was a powerful time in my own life. It was also a powerful time in shifting the leadership culture of this church. I would say this, my parents' generation of leadership in this church, and it's probably too true of the church that most of us, in your, if you're kind of in middle age, grew up under. They did not talk about their sin. They didn't talk about their struggles. And so the presumption by those of us growing up under them was they didn't have any. And so how dare I, I'm not gonna say anything. Now, praise God, we've course corrected some of that. And our parents did a lot of wonderful things, but that was a miss. And it changed the leadership culture of this church. And God began to use me in ministry uh, in a way that was just, I was single-minded. And I remember telling the Lord at this point, somewhere around late in my 27th year, God, you know what? I mean, I wanna be married, but, but I'm good. I'm good. I'm seeing so much happen for, the, for your kingdom and these young men that are growing in you. I'm excited about what you're doing. What a privilege. And so I went to, in December of 2001, uh, to Camp Berea, to a youth workers conference at, at Berea. And um, very early in the weekend, I, I ran into a girl that I had known back earlier in life. Her name was Christy Donaldson. And there was not like fireworks and like instant romance. It wasn't that. But this young woman had a, a quiet strength to her and a godly peace. And I was drawn to that. And I actually kind of wrestled with God over the next couple of weeks going like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Lord, I feel like I'm finally content and resolved to just be like Paul. And it, it, I, I get the sense, and I don't want to be irreverent here, that God just kind of got this small smile and just said, yeah, yeah, kid, you know. Uh, to make a really long story short, uh, a few weeks later, we started courting. Seven weeks later, we were engaged. Six months later, we were married. Now, that was God's plan. Let, let me be really clear. That's not a formula. That's my story. Right? Very well could have been that God called me to stay single for the rest of my life and serve him, and I would have been happy and content, at least in that season. That may not be your story, but here's the point John Piper says it this way in one of his curriculums, don't waste your life. If you are unmarried, whether you're later in life and you've been through the tragedy of divorce or you're young and you long to be married, that's fine. But give that to the Lord and be devoted for him, to him. Don't waste this season. In fact, what Paul is actually saying, if you look at verse 17, he says, whatever station you find yourself in when Christ calls you, if you're married, stay married and serve the Lord and be faithful to your spouse. If you're single, be faithful to the Lord and be devoted to him until God calls you out of that season. That's the essence of the message. And that includes for both married and, and uh, single or unmarried people, surrendering our sexuality to his will and way. 
He is the one who designed sex and he gets to prescribe what is good, healthy, and that honors him. And so I, I wanna move to this next idea of sex in the gospel. And we're gonna move, end with just application this morning. And if, if you're uncomfortable with the phrasing sex in the gospel, then you need to come back and do a more thorough study of the theology of marriage, sex, and the gospel. Because it's meant to point us to Christ ultimately. But we'll call it the call to holy sexuality. So I want to use 1 Corinthians 6 mostly and 1 Corinthians 7 to speak to our unmarried folks on the one hand and married on the other. So first, to the unmarried. Three principles the first one is honor the family of God. Or you could say honor marriage, but it's really broader than that. Honor the family of God. How do you do that? Paul says in 1 Timothy to treat younger women as sisters with absolute purity. And you can apply that to the opposite sex as well. Treat each other, men and women who are unmarried, no matter your uh, sort of life stage or age or career path, uh, treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you struggle with that, if you find yourself objectifying the opposite sex in your church family, then you can go to Job 31, where Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. A covenant is a binding agreement with God that I will not look lustfully at a girl. Or certainly applies to the opposite sex. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, it's not just the act of uh, the sex act related to adultery, right? It's the lust that happens in our minds because God wants our hearts. Again, be devoted to him. Honor the family of God. Number two, honor yourself, or we could say honor your body. Both of those are synonymous in Christian teaching. While they've been separated in our culture, to honor our body is to honor ourselves. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Paul says in, in Romans chapter one that there's this uh, unholy exchange that takes place when we go down the road of sexual sin, where we, we're no longer able to, uh, to even see, perceive, or understand the truth of God, and we begin to worship the creature rather than the creator. Right? Marriage, our, uh, sex distinction is good. Sexual intimacy is a gift. It's God glorifying. But when it becomes ultimate, it becomes an idol. And everything gets out of whack. Honor yourself. Don't defile yourself. And more than that, taking that thought further, do not uh, honor Christ. Honor Christ. Paul goes on to say, don't you know that your bodies are part of Christ's body? And so when we enter into a, a, a behavior that is sexually sinful, we're actually causing Christ to participate that in a sense, is what Paul's saying. And, and that should be abhorrent to us to think about. Think about the activity of baptism. Baptism pictures in the physical realm what has happened in my spirit when I came to faith in Jesus, that I, I died with Christ. I'm identifying with him in his death. I'm raised to life. I identify with him in new life. But there's also the promise that I am a new creation in Christ. And so Paul says this, so should I take part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Paul further says, a little bit earlier actually, he says, just as Christ has been raised from the dead, so too you're going to be raised from the dead. Again, our expectations and passions are base and small compared to God's design. So Paul says to consider the cost. For you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your body. 
Did you know that this morning, that if you were a Christian, that Christ purchased you and your body for his kingdom purposes? He owns you, married or single. And so if you're unmarried, Christ owns your body. If you are married, Christ owns your body. But Paul says, so does your spouse. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. And each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There's a world of teaching in this passage as well. But the three principles to our unmarried folks, honor the body of Christ, the family of Christ, honor yourselves and honor Jesus To our married folks, number one, be faithful. Paul says that husbands and wives belong to each other. Again, if you know Christ, Jesus owns your body, but still your but your spouse does as well. This is completely countercultural. Right? What is the what is the mantra of our time? My body, my choice. And the Bible would challenge that and say, no, your body belongs to the Lord Jesus and is given to your spouse as a gift. Now, that does not excuse abuse. It does not excuse manipulation or coercion. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, Paul says in Ephesians 5, 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Pursue each other. Serve one another. Men, that means put effort into your sex life. Create a romantic environment. Put some energy into it. Engage your wife in relationship. Draw her out as a human being and as a person. Spend some energy. Be gentle and tender with her throughout the week. uh, Touch her in non-sexual ways that just affirm who she is in your life. Ladies, don't ever weaponize sex or use it as a punishment for your husband. It's not biblical. It's what Paul's talking about here. Look for opportunities to serve your husband and to be available, maybe even at times where you don't totally feel like it. To say it humorously, don't use the headache excuse all the time. (laughs) There should be times in a healthy marriage where the husband says, you know what, honey, I get it. It, you, You have had a long day, it's okay, I'm fine. And other times where the wife says, you know what? I'm tired, but I love you that much. I'm yours. Pursue each other. Should be faithful. Number two, frequent. Husbands and wives should have sex often. How many of you woke up for church this morning knowing you were going to hear that statement? (laughs) And you say, well, how do you get that from the text? Paul says, do not deprive one another except for a time in an agreed upon way to pray And then he immediately says, and then come together again. Why? So that you do not give the devil a foothold. Men, your wives are drawn away and tempted relationally and emotionally. If you are an absentee friend in your marriage and partner, you create, and you're also not having sex, you create an environment that is tempting for your wife. 
You should be engaging your wife in conversation eyeball to eyeball every day. Study her, learn about her, show interest in her interests. Give her no reason to see a relationship with someone else in her life who's a male become emotionally entwined. Ladies, your husbands are tempted and can be drawn away visually. And by the way, in either of these cases, I'm not excusing the sinful behavior of the opposite sex. I'm speaking to you. In this case, ladies, how you dress around your husband, particularly in the privacy of your room, and frankly, how you undress is really important for your marriage and for the health of your marriage. Serve each other in this way. Now, what about frequency? You say, okay, well, what exactly does that mean? Experientially, in my own marriage and marriages that we've worked, out, worked with, again, from, from our experience, a marriage that is healthy and established in early middle to late middle age of life is probably having sex one to three times a week. Now, there's other factors, right? If you have small children in the house, it's like you got to play chess to make that happen, right? Or it's maybe more like pool, right, to arrange life. If, you have, if you're taking care of your elderly parents, if you work opposite shifts, there are things that, you know, health issues and so on and so forth. I get it. But on average, one to three times a week. I want to be really practical. Let me say it this way. If you're having sex one to three times a year or something like that, you need to seek someone out, a Christian counselor, a pastor, an elder, elder's wife, whatever the case, because it's not biblical and it's not healthy. God gets to prescribe, right? On the other hand, if you're having sex one to three times a day, you're a newlywed. <laughs> or you may also need to talk to someone. <laughs> and you know what? You could share whatever your secret is with me. <laughs> Uh, I'm kidding on that one. Here's the point. What we, the, the mistakes we make are we make too much of sex or too little of sex, right? God's design. So the third one is fun. God, God gave us sex for our enjoyment. Husband and wives should delight in each other. You know, not that long ago, one of my children was doing some uh, kind of intensive Bible study. And uh, whenever you find your kids like studying the word on their own, like your heart just leaps within you, right? And uh, they said to me, they said, hey, dad, you know, Song of Solomon isn't the only book of the Bible that talks about breasts a lot. And I said, oh, I said, you've been reading Proverbs 5. How'd you know? Proverbs 5, may your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. I dare say most women in the room would not receive that as a compliment, but he goes on. Different culture, different time. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you be ever captivated by her love. Now in our over-sexualized culture, we go right to the breast satisfying, right? We kind of land there. Uh, let me make a point about that and then we'll go to what the point of the verse actually is. Men, if you are married, do your wife's breasts satisfy you? Or are you looking elsewhere and elsewhere and elsewhere and elsewhere? But the major point of the passage is to be captivated by her love. There's the idea that this is being received and enjoyed as a gift together. It's also fair. I, I would imagine that there's some women in the room going like, gosh, that almost seems like sexist or uh, objectifying. Right? Why is this written to men? What about the woman's side of it? Well, understand a couple of things. Number one, in, in the culture of the very patriarchal culture, 
right, at the time this is written. Also, Proverbs is most likely written by Solomon. Two young men coming of age is as like a manual for here's how to do godliness in everyday life. So it's actually targeted to young men. But in the spirit of one interpretation, many applications, it certainly applies to the opposite sex. Ladies, you should be satisfied with the body of your husband with his strength and how God complements you two together. When he holds you in his arms, you should feel safe and secure and you should be captivated by his love. Listen to Song of Solomon, which is much more poetic and beautiful. The groom says, I have come to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gather my myrrh with my spices. I eat my honeycomb with my honey. I drink my wine with my milk. And then the friends of the bride and groom say this, eat friends, drink, be intoxicated with caresses. I can imagine the conversations this afternoon. Honey, the pastor said so. (laughs) But do you see that this couple is before God delighting in each other? Uh, years, years ago, I was walking in Groton with a friend of mine who was like two weeks from marriage. I mean, this was like 25 years ago. I wasn't married yet. And he was like two weeks from marriage. And we were two Christian guys who were contending for purity. We really wanted purity. And so we talked about this stuff often. And I remember saying to him, bro, in two weeks, you're going to be having sex with a woman and God's going to be smiling on that. And we weren't joking around. Like we were really blown away at God's goodness, and he was genuinely excited in the spirit of Song of Solomon. One caveat to this, the idea of having fun and delighting, do not violate each other's convictions. In particular, if one or both of you has a background in pornography, be very careful about importing expectations into your sex life from that background. You may need to talk to a pastor or a counselor about that. Be very careful. I'll share a personal story. You know, um, my wife and I, we're, we're committed to these three things, to being faithful, frequent, and fun. And I will tell you in all seriousness, she serves me well in this area. And I hope that she would say, and I think she would say, likewise. We're committed to those things. We want to model that even as we talk about these kinds of things. But for some of you, you don't or haven't known fun or frequency in a long time. Maybe because you violated the faithful part. I don't, I don't know. But I just want to tell you that God can bring restoration. He's a grace-filled God. As we are repentant and we commit anew to invite where we've maybe said stay out, to invite him back, he can do th- amazing things to heal you. For my unmarried friends who are saying, you know, I don't know what it is to, be in pe- to have peace in my person, so to speak, without sex in my life. God can do an incredible work as you surrender this area over to him. So for whatever area you may have transgressed and if you've been faithful and holy and loyal to God in this, praise him. But if you haven't, repentance and restoration is readily available. That's the the kind of God that we serve. So I'm gonna pray together and then uh, just a couple of resources and then we'll ask Mary to end our service in a moment. Let's pray. Lord God, I just want to pray for um, all of us this morning that you would do the work of restoration. Lord, that we would be resolved if we've been faithful to continue to honor you. Recognize, Lord, that we kind of need a reset in our thinking about sex and your plan and all that stuff. So would you help us? God, we thank you for your goodness, that sex distinction is good, that sexual intimacy is a gift. 
and it's meant to glorify you. I pray, Lord, I thank you for the fact that I can say, Lord, at GBC, we do have an army of unmarried folks and different stages of life who faithfully serve you and are devoted to you first. God, we praise you for that. And we pray for the health of the marriages in this room. In Jesus' name, amen.